This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. episode 78 with Brian Chan on more Stillwater tips and tricks. Hey everybody, just wanted to hop in quickly and make a quick announcement before the show. Um, we are rapidly approaching flyathlon season and for those who aren't familiar with the flyathlon, it is a super fun race that happens a couple times each year, uh, and it's based around running, fishing, and drinking beer, which are three of my favorite things. Um, and if you'd like to hear more about the race, you can listen to episode one of the Fish Untamed podcast, where I interviewed Andrew Todd, the founder of the Flyathlon. Uh, but in addition to being a really fun weekend with a lot of fun people, uh, the Flyathlon is also a fundraiser uh, to raise money for native cutthroat trout conservation. So if you have a couple extra dollars that you would be interested in donating to a great cause to support native cutthroat trout, go ahead and head over to my website, fishuntamed.com, um, and you'll find a menu at the top called Flyathlon Fundraiser. That link should take you to the fundraiser, and you can donate there. And any amount is greatly appreciated. Um, this would be a great way to support the show and also support uh, a wonderful cause for native trout. So that's all I've got for you, and we can get on with the show. I'd just like to start off by getting uh, a background about my guests. So um, I'd just love to hear how you got your start in fly fishing. So I, I got started with fishing at a very young age because my dad was an avid saltwater salmon fisherman. So I was, yeah, definitely hooked on fishing at a very young age. And uh, you know what, what piqued my interest in fishing in fresh water was reading articles in Outdoor Life magazine that my dad and my, that my dad subscribed to at the time, 
of course, he wasn't interested in fishing in rivers or lakes. It was all salt water, but it, it, it piqued my interest to see that and then to read about it and then to watch some TV shows on it. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got started. I eventually, um, I remember I was probably 10 years old when I saw an advertisement for free fly casting lessons being offered by this fly fishing club in Vancouver where I was born and raised. And, uh, so I took the bus down on a Saturday morning and, and, uh, got some instruction on this little lake in this, in right in downtown Vancouver. And, uh, I was fascinated from from then on, and I always I was always fascinated with fish, and I knew when I grew up I wanted to work with fish, and I can remember in grade four we had to write a little three four sentence paragraph of what you wanted to be when you grew up, and in grade four I wrote that I wanted to be a nictheologist. And that's someone who studies fish. And I, my mom still has that little paragraph that I printed out on foolscap. And uh, yeah, it's, that's how I, in my love of, well, not my love, my passion of fishing and particularly fly fishing led me to a, you know, 35 year career managing recreational freshwater fisheries. And I would definitely like to get into that. Um, I talked to Phil yesterday, and our talk was mostly focused on tips and techniques for still water, which I would like to cover with you as well. But um, he mentioned that you had more of like a biological side to it. So I'd also really like to, to dive into that at some point um, sure. and, kind of, and kind of just get uh, an overview of, of how lakes work biologically. Because, oh, um, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> um, but how did, you, how did you find a passion for uh, still water fishing? You know, um, we our neighbor, um, they had a son that was my age, and we used to go fishing together, take the bus and fish off the wharves in Vancouver Inlet and catch pile perch and things like that. And uh, they 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 invited me on a on a one week trip to an interior lake because they rented a cabin every year, uh, and I, and they asked me if I wanted to go and. I wasn't obviously wasn't fly fishing then, but I, I just, you know, the it was just so nice to not have to get up at four in the morning to go saltwater fishing and you're not getting seasick and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know and, and we were able to catch fish and it was warm out and yeah it was beautiful it was just a wonderful experience and I just I just loved that that experience and um, that's what really got me hooked on more more of a focus on freshwater fishing and in particular lakes so like you and you and phil are kind of known as the stillwater guys so did you do much river fishing um was it just that there were lakes more available yeah, where no, you lived? no i fish rivers um as much as i can where i live in british columbia in the interior uh, we're inundated with lakes and um, we've got a few large rivers but we don't have small streams and we don't have spring creeks or anything like that. But I've, I've done my share of uh, small stream fishing, river fishing, uh, and I really, really enjoy it. it um, but, you know, everybody knows me as a still water guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a product of your environment at that point. If, if that's what you've got available, then. Um... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, 
like I said, I, I would love to dive into the biological side. So maybe we could start there. Um, sure. since, since that kind of informs, uh, you know, why, why techniques might work. So, um, I think it would give listeners a really well-rounded idea of, of why certain techniques um, would work, especially if anyone has listened to the episode um, I did with Phil. What's a, if you could just start with kind of a 30,000-foot a overview, and maybe we'll, we'll dive into a couple more um, specific things later, but um, if you were to describe to somebody in general how a lake works, um, you know, what, what kinds of communities are going on in a lake, you know, how do fish interact with their prey and their environment, um, if you could just give like an, an overview and maybe... When, when we uh, keep going, we can dive in further on some of these topics. Sure. So I can describe a typical productive trout lake, um, which we've got scattered throughout North, North America. Um, so I think what's important to understand is that if you took a cross-sectional view of a lake, if you had a lake and then you could cut it in half and then see what how it was built, you would notice that the best trout lakes or the best fishing lakes have an abundance of shallow water. And then that shallow water slopes off into a deeper mid-lake portion and then shallows back up. So that shallow water is extremely important for photosynthesis to occur, which allows green plants to grow. And that lush green plant vegetation in a lake provides the habitat for the food sources, as well as the trout. And the deep parts of the lake, and deep meaning it could only be 30, 40, 50 feet deep, but it's a refuge in the warm summer months for the fish to escape warmer, less oxygenated water. And so it's a balance of having, a great trout lake is a balance of having lots of shallow, what we call shoal area, uh, and also having some deep water refuge uh, to escape in the summertime. And what, I, I mean, I know at least a few of the examples, but um, why are green plants so important? So green plants, so we're talking about um, things like uh, pondweed, uh, native species of milfoil, uh, even lily pads. They, they provide um, habitat for food sources like uh mayflies, damselflies, dragonflies, caddisflies, uh, and then the shallow muddy areas of the lake provide the habitat for the midges or chironomids. And um, and then if you have lots of emergent vegetation like long stem bulrush or cattails, then you provide the perfect habitat for damselflies, which need something, some emergent vegetation to crawl up out of the water on to complete the transformation from the nymphal to the adult stage. And are these the uh, the primary, I know you're not an entomologist specifically, but um, are these kind of the primary uh, insects you're finding in a lake? And and what's kind of that life cycle like? You know, what, what are fish primarily feeding on, and specifically trout? If we're talking about a, a typical trout lake, and um, for the sake of this, we'll talk about the lakes around you, um, which are probably more productive than the lakes that we have here. Um, but what's kind of that, that food cycle like? So um, you've probably got the same different um, or same types of food sources like mayflies and damselflies and caddisflies, dragonflies and midges. It's just that in a productive lake, the diversity of species and the abundance or population 
abundance of individual species is higher in a more nutrient-rich lake. But um, midges or chironomids that live in a lake around where I live in the southern interior of British Columbia hatch the same way they would in a farm pond in Missouri, for example. The, the sizes, the, the sizes and colors, meaning the species will be different, and the relative abundance may be different, but a chronomid or midge will hatch the same way there as here, the same as mayflies, the same as damselflies and dragonflies and caddisflies. They'll all hatch. Their life cycle will be similar. Their emergence tactics will be the same, regardless of where it is in the world. And regarding hatch, like the 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 prolific hatches that you get on streams, that I don't I don't associate at least lakes with as prolific of hatches as some of the streams out there. Um, is there a reason for that? Yeah, so um, it, it all depends on the individual lake. Like I would compare our lakes uh, where I live as productive in terms of hatches as any tailwater or spring creek found anywhere in North America. Oh, okay. So it all depends on the water quality, the chemistry of the water, the nutrient richness of that water dictates the, the biodiversity and abundance of invertebrate food sources for the trout. Okay, so if if people like myself tend to associate lakes with being uh, less productive in terms of hatches, um, no. that's that's just kind of a, a localized yeah. lake thing, not, yeah. not a lakes yeah. in general. Yeah, that's just, I mean, uh, you, you we could be on a lake tomorrow in the Kamloops area and the the sky is going to be covered with chronomid or midge adults and the the water will be covered with the shucks of recently hatched uh, midges and the fish are going to be in the water column gorging on those midge people all day long it, so it'd be identical to what you would see dr- drifting the missouri river or the green river when those niche hatches come off, it's it's the same except we're on we're in standing water and not flowing water. Okay, this this might be just a localized dif- difference for me since I'm um, typically up at some like high alpine lakes where they're yes. they're just not as productive. <laughs> exactly. So you're yeah, that's right. I read that you like to do you like to hike and fish remote alpine lakes, which um, have a much gro- shorter growing season have extremely limited nutrient loading because it's all rock around there. You're above tree line. So the the productivity of that water is a thousand fold less than something in the valley bottom. And so that means that the diversity and abundance of food sources are going to be reflected by the water quality. Okay. That's good to know. And maybe you can answer this question for me. Maybe you can't um, just, it, it might be, uh, specific to alpine lakes, but I notice when I go to them that there one of three things happens. There's either a lot of small fish, um, a couple really big fat fish, or just a couple big but skinny fish. And yeah. um, the skinny fish makes sense to me, you know, if yeah. if they're just not getting enough food. But occasionally these lakes have just really big fat fish in them, and I, I'm not sure what the difference is between all these yeah. situations. So. So if these are all high elevation alpine lakes, then the lake with just a few big fish has 
a very limited amount of natural spawning habitat. So recruitment to the lake is extremely low. And there's probably some predation going on by the bigger fish in the lake are eating the fry that come into the lake. Whereas the lake uh, and the population is low enough of fish in the lake that the available food allows them to grow big. So another lake close by could have a small population, but the fish are all skinny, but they're big. And it's the same situation, except the water quality or the water chemistry is different. And there's not as much nutrient in that lake to grow as much food for what fish are in there. Interesting. And I assume uh, the lake that has, uh, you know, a million tiny fish uh, just might have more spawning habitat. There's a lot of fry that are born every year. And, you know, the the growth rate can't really keep up with the number of fish being produced. That it's it's got a more gentle gradient inlet stream, uh, better sized gravel for spawning, and so they can overpopulate. Huh, that's really interesting. And I'm I'm thinking of lakes I've been to, and one in particular that has the really big fat fish. Um, there's not a lot of shallows at all. It's just kind of a deep bowl. Like this, the sides drop immediately. Um, and so I I'm wondering if maybe that's why you know there's not a lot of places for them to uh, go into an inlet or an outlet and and spawn. Yeah, yeah, and these are are these rainbow or cutthroat? Uh, I'm mostly thinking of cutthroat, although um, when it's a lot of small fish, it's often brook trout. Oh, okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah. What, why do you ask? I'm, I'm curious if there's differences in species. Yeah, yeah, there's there's so so cutthroat in general are much are, are far less selective feeders than rainbow trout, for instance, and brook trout can be extremely selective in their feeding compared to rainbow trout. So uh, the, the, the cutthroat that are big uh, get big because they don't, they don't snub any food sources. They'll eat anything that gets in front of them. Okay. Whereas, where, yeah, where, whereas brook trout are, can be extremely moody and picky on their diet. Okay, I, this is just me uh, spitballing here, but is the reasoning for cutthroats being um, really selective that they, well, I guess m- maybe not, because I'm thinking of the cutthroats today, which are often stocked in these high alpine lakes, but that's not not necessarily where they uh, originated. You know, most of yeah. these lakes were barren. Um, but in my mind, I was thinking if a cutthroat is in one of these lakes where there isn't a lot of productivity, then they, they might not be able to be selective because there's they've got to take what they can get. But now that I'm thinking about it, if they weren't originally in these lakes when we put them there, then do you happen to know why um, cutthroat are kind of opportunistic, whereas something like a brook trout is more selective? No, it's just um, that's that's just the nature of the individual species. So, like, so there's been many many studies done on the on the cutthroat in the Yellowstone River and in the section that's catchingly fishing below Yellowstone Lake and the average cutthroat in that two to three miles below the lake, which is heavily fished, right? It's right in the middle of Yellowstone National Park, get caught an average of nine times a season. Oh, wow. <laughs> they're, they're very gullible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking across species I've caught. And what's, what's interesting is that when I think of a, a fish that is generally easy to catch, the first thing that comes to mind for me is brook trout. I feel like... If there are brook trout somewhere, I can almost throw anything and I will catch one. Um, 
And then on the other end of the spectrum are brown trout where, you know, you've got to, especially as they get larger, um, they get, I feel like much, much harder to trick. Um, but yeah, I definitely think of brook trout as being the, the easy ones. And um, that's certainly not the way it is in our lakes. The only time the brook trout seem to be easier to catch is in the winter through the ice. Uh, but, but as you know, for brown trout, the older they get, the more nocturnal they get in their feeding patterns. The brown trout don't get big and old by being stupid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, do you, what, what species do you have around you? Like, what are you usually fishing for in, in your lakes? We're fishing for rainbow and uh, brook trout. And uh, most of our lakes are, were created by receding glaciers. So the scouring, they were scoured out. So they were fishless. And um, so uh, stocking programs uh, sustain our fisheries. And uh, we have a very progressive fish culture program in BC where um, 95% of the rainbow trout that we stock into our lakes are, they're the parents of those fish were wild. They, they weren't hatchery brood stock. So we, we, uh, that maintains the genetic diversity of the fish and it, it maintains their strong fighting abilities um, that way. And then we also, um, to, to manage our quality fisheries, we stock non-reproductive fish. So they're sterile or triploided, so they don't reproduce. So that all their energy goes into growth, not not into sexual maturation at, at you, you know at three and four and five years of age. So they can get quite large. That's something I'd uh, like to hear more about, just because um, I wrote a blog post uh, a year or two ago about triploid trout, and I'm by no means an expert, but it was it was more just a primer for like what is a triploid trout, um, and it just goes into the fact that they're sterile and um, they're used to grow big. But um, I had a couple people reach out and express um, I, I don't know if concern is the right word, but uh, questions about whether. Um, triploid trout are a good thing um, or if they can ever go wrong. And I'm not really sure what all of the uh, concern has been about, but are triploids um, 100% sterile? Is there any chance that uh, like bad genetics slip through that can then, um, you know, breed into a wild population or just tell me more about triploid trout in general? Sure. You know, there, it, it's not a hundred percent. You can have, it could be 98.5. It could be 99.5%. Uh, but for instance, in British Columbia, we learned that if we stocked brook trout diploid or reproductive brook trout in lakes that had outlet streams and those fish escaped and got into river systems that were home to native bull trout populations, the brook trout could interbreed with the bull trout and the progeny would be, or the offspring would be sterile naturally. And so brook trout were a threat to bull, endangered or, or red listed species of bull trout. As, as, you, as you probably know, the bull trout are a threatened species in a lot of their habitats. So since, since 1996 in British Columbia, all brook trout stockings have been non-reproductive and they are not stocked in lakes that have outlets so that was something that that's a long time ago I mean, you think about um that was very proactive back then but 
stocking the stocking of non-reproductive uh, rainbows, and we also stock non-reproductive kokanee where we don't want them to reproduce. We want to manage, control the population. It's all about controlling or managing growth rates. And, you know, the, the decision has to be made on, on a particular lake. If it's going to be a, a family fishery that's open year round, ice fishing, open water, you know, high catch limits, uh, then you, you want to manage, you want to put enough fish in that lake for them to, to, to be able to be caught. But if you're, if you're managing a lake for a, a quality fishing experience, then you put far less fish in the lake. You put non-reproductive stock in. You don't have winter fishing. It's probably going to be catch and release when it is open or a significantly reduced limit like one fish. And it'll be a single barbless bait band on the lake. And that's just to increase survival rates of fish that are going to be caught and released. And it works. Now, if you are um, stocking the non-reproductive brook trout, does that mean that uh, you have to basically continue to stock them? Like you're, you're kind of guaranteeing that the stocking will have to continue because they can't reproduce naturally? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. It's an ongoing, it's, it's basically an annual um, commitment to, um, to be stocking them. So many, many, many of our lakes in British Columbia, like we, we've got world-class stillwater trout fishing opportunities in, in the interior regions of BC. It's I often refer to it as the Yellowstone North. It, we, it's, it's what we have in lakes is comparable to any Blue Ribbon tailwater spring creeks anywhere else in North America, and it shows by where the anglers come from to fish lakes in BC, they know, I mean, we get lots of, for instance, lots and lots of anglers from Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, coming to BC to fish lakes, because the quality of the fishing is so much better. The quality of the fish is so much better. Now, the do the is it true that the non-reproductive fish um, grow larger because they're not putting uh, their, I guess, their growth energy toward um, reproduction and instead putting it toward getting bigger or because I've heard that triploids tend to be bigger but I don't know if that's because they're often stocked in conjunction with you know maybe a catch and release laws that are just allowing them to grow larger yeah so the non-reproductive trout you know direct all their energy to growth plus non-reproductive fish live longer they'll live seven eight nine years before dying of old age whereas reproductive trout rarely get past five or six years of age simply because the rigors of spawning take their toll. Um, another question about BC that that um, I, I thought of when you were talking about the, the lakes, the world-class lakes, you mentioned that there were not a lot of small streams there, but you guys have mountains, right? And that's where I tend to yeah. think of small streams. Um, so why, why don't you have the, the great small stream fishing that we have here because of our mountains? So our... I guess the best small stream fisheries in BC are on the um, are on the east side of the Rocky Mountains and in the southeast corner of the province, and it's for West Slope cutthroat, which are native. and uh, And then we do have small stream rainbow fisheries in the northern, central, and northern parts of the province. Uh, and again, they're 
all of our our river systems are wild. We don't stock cutthroat or rainbow into rivers. The only river stockings that are done are coastal steelhead in in a handful of rivers. So so our stream fisheries and our river fisheries are all based on wild populations of either rainbow trout, cutthroat trout, or bull trout, which are char. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you guys have native rainbows there? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. And is that, uh, how far inland? Is it just basically as far as will connect to the coast that can hold native rainbows on the West Coast? I know that there's native rainbows that are part of a coast mountain range to have access to the ocean. Um, but we have inland populations of rainbow, wild rainbow that, you know, are never going to, you know, spend their whole life in rivers uh, in in the interior regions of the province. So uh, British Columbia is a huge, huge province. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's 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 extremely big. So there's there's lots of diversity of uh, geography and uh, and the uh, the native or wild fish populations match the geography that that they live in. Sure. Every time I look at a map of Canada, I'm surprised by how big your provinces are compared to our states. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one last question on um, maybe more of the biology side before we get into um, some actual fishing techniques. Um, what's What are the changes se- like seasonality wise? Um, you know, what are fish doing in the spring uh, through through summer and into winter? Uh, what, what's that transition look like? Um, you know, where they're hanging out and why they're moving uh, where they're moving. So right right now it's it's mid spring. Uh, it's the mid spring season for us in in the lakes and in the interior regions of the province. So this is the time to be fishing uh, because this is it's from early spring till early summer when ninety percent of the aquatic insect hatches occur. And so right now we're just getting into the heavy midge or chronomid hatches, which are an extremely important still water food source for trout. And also one of the most effective ways to catch fish on a fly is with chronomid or midge pupa patterns. And then by midsummer, because water temperatures are warming up, the majority of the hatches have thinned out. So we have to remember that everything in lakes is governed by water temperature. 
And so those warming temperatures in the spring, as they build towards early summer, um, sees the bulk of aquatic insect hatches. Midsummer to early fall, the fish are then feeding on food sources that are in the lake because they're like immature, down to flies, mayflies, dragonflies, or they're feeding on freshwater shrimp or scuds because they're year they're year round or leeches, uh, and they're typically feeding in deeper water because oftentimes the shallow shoal water on the lake is too warm during the the middle of summer, and the trout can't get back onto the shallow shoals, which provides the best food sources until the late fall months when air temperatures are cooled water temperatures are cool, fish can go back into shallow water to bulk up in preparation for winter and four to six months of ice. And in the winter, um, you know, I, I suppose that would probably be ice fishing if anyone were out there, but where are they hanging out in the winter? Are they moving back into the deep water where it's um, temperatures more consistent? So the, 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 in the wintertime, at the start of winter, just, over, just as the lake freezes over in the early winter, the fish are still in shallow water. And then they'll slowly slip out into deeper water during the middle of winter. And then they'll come back into shallow water late winter, uh, right right until ice off. Okay. Now, trying this into fishing techniques, I have to imagine that you are catering what you're, what you're throwing and how you're throwing it for these seasonal changes you know I, I have to assume that you're fishing differently in the spring than you might be in the in the middle of summer um yes so yes. walk me through that you know if you go out let's say next week um what what would you be throwing and why would you be doing that and then maybe let's say like late summer um just before fall starts before the weather starts getting cool maybe compare it to what you, what you might be doing on an average day in that that time of the year okay so if we're out on the lake um tomorrow or the next week or for the next month we would be fishing most likely with floating lines, floating fly lines with or without strike indicators. And we would be suspending midge pupa, chronomid pupa. Uh, we would be wind drifting leeches, micro leeches, or we would be casting and retrieving mayfly nymphs, down to fly nymphs, caddis pupa. But during the months of May and most of June, it's predominantly midge or chronomid pupil fishing. But if we move the clock ahead until August the 15th, the, the height of summer, we're going to go out on the water. We would be rigging up type 5, type 6, type 7 full sinking lines and fishing deeper water, the edges of the drop-off as before they come up to the shoals or mid-lake 30 feet uh, of water, 40 feet of water, and we would be fishing leeches, dragonfly nymphs, or we'd be suspending blobs, which imitate clusters of zooplankton, or we would be fishing, we would be casting and retrieving attractor-type patterns like uh, boobies, which are very effective in the warm summer months in deep water. So we're trying to elicit an aggressive strike from a fish that sees something coming through their territory and they, they bite at it to get rid of it, not necessarily to eat it. And then by the third week of September, the fish are now back in shallow water and it's gonna be a floating line 
situation again with leeches, shrimp or scud patterns, or slow sinking lines with scud patterns, water boatmen, back swimmer patterns. Now, the fish are in shallow water in both spring and fall, but I noticed that in the spring you're using coronamids, and in the fall you're using scuds, leeches, things like that. Is that just due to the hatch schedule more than the fish behavior at that point? That, that's It's because in the spring the predominant hatch and food source coronamids, they're all done by fall. They don't ha- their, their hatches are finished. In the fall, it's bread and butter food sources, scuds, leeches, and then fall mating and swarming flights of water boatmen and back swimmers. And then also things like juvenile damselfly nymphs because they have a multi-year life cycle. So there's always baby damsels around. You'll search them out. And do you ever throw these other patterns under an indicator? Um, Or are you mostly stripping those in without an indicator um, under the assumption that they move around a little bit more than than midges do? Do you you, uh, vary that at all? So... You know, pretty much the scuds, which are an extremely important food source for trout in in nutrient-rich lakes, they're often better fished, casting, retrieving with sinking lines like clear camel or slow sinking type 2, type 3, full sinking lines, and the fish will chase after them. Um, But we do a lot, if you think about it, because so much of our feeding is done in shallow water, like the prime time, spring and the fall. It's done in shallow water. The food food sources are typically close to the bottom. We can fish a lot of the year with floating lines and indicators. It's It's an extremely effective way to fish. And when you're choosing a depth for your indicator rig, um, Phil and I got into this a little bit and we talked about you know, how he's usually fishing these flies pretty close to the bottom. Um, but how are yeah. you dialing in that depth? Is it kind of a trial and error, like start start with roughly the depth of the lake and then, you know, adjust it as needed? Or how are you choosing that? You you go to bed every night with your depth sounder under your pillow. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need, your depth sounder is your friend. Um, otherwise, you're, you're clipping a weight onto your fly, lowering it down setting indicator when you you know you're a foot off the bottom but you really really at a disadvantage if you're not fishing with some kind of a depth depth sounder interesting that's that's not something i usually think of um being associated with fly fishing and i'm not really sure why um but i maybe it's because a lot of fly fly anglers um you know wade streams and so it's just not a piece of gear you would use but um i assume based on that that you are generally fishing from a boat yes we don't we have very few lakes that you can fish from shore because because of the extensive shallow water and you sink up to your neck if you tried to wade in it yeah you need some kind of a floating craft unlike like i've done my share of alpine lake fishing you you can fish from shore because it's rocky right <laughs> right <laughs> Well, that's why I was wondering because, um, again, it's, it's so hard for me to um, put myself in this other situation because when I'm when I'm fishing a lake that's not an alpine lake, it's generally a you know a very warm water lake, you know bass, bluegill, uh, things like that. I, I very rarely fish a, a trout lake that's not a high alpine lake. And you're right; those alpine lakes, you know, we often have a shelf that's you know four 
maybe four feet of water, uh, but it's all rocky. So you throw a pair of chest waders on and you can wade out to your chest yeah. and just heave it out there and get right over the shelf. Um, so this is yeah. a completely different yeah. world. <laughs> yeah, it's different. You need, you need to be in something that floats. <laughs> and are you usually in uh, kind of a small personal float tube or are you in a, a larger boat? I know you said you guided, um, which I'd also like to yeah. hear about. No, you know what? The, the standard floating apparatus up here is a 10 or 12 foot aluminum john boat or in my case i have a 10 foot john boat for myself if i go out myself then i have a 14 foot john boat when i'm taking guests out okay and so i'd like to hear more about this too um because most of the most of the guides i've talked to again have been river guides um tell me how a a trip goes on a lake You're, you're taking a client out um you know let's say they they want to catch uh, quite a few fish, but they're maybe interested in some larger fish as well. How are you going about, you know, finding a good spot in the lake and getting that person on fish? So, you know what, uh, I've been guiding for about, oh, maybe 15 years now. And every year when I commit to guiding again, I know that, and your river guides will tell you the same thing. You have to be on the water constantly to know what's going on. Like, it would be interesting if, if it was only one lake I had to fish, but I've got a hundred lakes within a hour and a half drive of Kamloops to fish. And so I've learned very well, you know, 20 or 30 key lakes that I like to fish. And so if a, if one of my clients says, you know, I'd like to try to catch, you know, some fishing, you know, more than three pounds, you know, maybe get a big five, six, seven pounder, then that narrows down the lakes that I can choose from. And so I'm constantly on the water, uh, just getting ready for the next uh, uh, clients that I'll be taking out. I, you need, I you know, always say, you know, you, you, we, I never go to a lake blind, meaning I never fish a lake with guests that I have not fished within at least two days. You, you just can't risk it. <laughs> I know what's going on. Well, and I, I, you know, Phil and I talked about this too, and I think lakes are often a little overwhelming for people because it kind of just seems like a big open bathtub. You know, where where do you start? Yeah. Um, and rivers, as much as as much as it's harder to deal with the currents and things, you know, if you're getting started fly fishing, getting a drag free drift is is a feat in itself. So that's that's yeah. the difficulty. But um, in in rivers and especially smaller rivers and and small streams. Finding the fish is generally not the hard part. It's it's getting a good That's drift right. and and you know getting getting them to actually want to take your fly. But in a lake, um, it's just really hard to figure out where to even begin. And um, I I would like to hear kind of your process on how you find it. Phil and I talked about this, but I'm sure uh, everybody's got their own unique you know method of of finding where a fish is going to be. That's right. You know, I get more and more. I get guests that are how that are um, lifelong river fishermen, but they're transitioning to lakes because they're getting older and it's harder for them to be hiking upstreams and they want to get away from busy traffic on, on the water. And so I get them out on the lake and I go like, where, where, where do you start? And then said, well, the key is understanding the life cycles of the food sources that live in the lake. So you have to know, we have to understand where certain bugs live, how much the depth zones they prefer. And it's all about that shallow. It's all about the shoal area where the, 
where you get photosynthesis that creates the habitat. So, you know, we, a, a simple rule of thumb is we probably spend 75% of our time on lakes, fishing in water less than 20 feet deep. So because the maximum extent of photosynthesis, even in the clearest lakes, is about 25 feet. Okay. So you've got to go where the grocery store is. That's because that's where the fish are going to go shopping. So yeah. And then you have to be able to recognize the different hatches that are coming off uh, or know, have a general idea of the timing of them. So it, it, there's a lot. I mean, in, in rivers, in flowing waters, you have to understand you, you understand the trout habitat, pool, riffle, run, glide, and that's where they live. In lakes, it's the shallow shoal area. It's the edge of the drop-off to deep water, and then it's the deep water zone. But it's all seasonally timing specific. And I think that in itself is even difficult. Just if, I, if I'm thinking about seasonality, sure, it's easy to say that, you know, in the spring they're here and in the summer they're here, but... Then there's that gray area in between, you know, when, when are they moving? Um, and I'm sure that's a little bit different every year just based on uh, weather. Is that yeah. is that a bit of a trial and error, the way you said that you don't want to guide somewhere that you haven't fished in the past two days? Like, you just want to go out there and, you know, let's say it is one of those transition times. You're just going to go out there and, yeah. and try to prospect for, for fish until you find out where they are and kind of – Yeah, you know, we, you know, if I'm, I, might, I may get on a lake and we may not fish for – half an hour because I'll just be motoring around looking uh, looking at different areas of the lake, watching for fish moving. If I see two or three fish move in one area, we're over there. Okay. And there may not be anything hatching. So we're going to go through bread and butter food sources like well, leeches, dragonfly nymphs, uh, things like that to try to get a fish, to get a fish that's big enough so I can do a throat pump on it and find out what they're really feeding on. And then hopefully by 10.30 in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, the spring chronomet hatches will start and we'll see some shucks floating by the boat or the swallows will come out and we know they're, only, they're not flying for exercise. They're looking for the same hatch we're looking for as well as what the trout are looking for. Interesting. And uh, Phil also mentioned the, the throat pumping, which I'm aware of. Um, I, is that more of a lake thing than a river thing? Because I don't actually uh, know anyone, um, or at least I'm not aware if I know anyone who actually does that on the river. But my thought is maybe that it's, it's pretty easy to see fish in the river, uh, at least smaller ones. And you can kind of see what they're feeding on, especially if they're rising. Yeah. Um, whereas in a lake, yeah. I, I could see it. You know, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. No. So, you know, um, the proper use of a throat pump, which, you know, are commercially sold as stomach pumps. You're not pumping the stomach. You're pumping the esophagus and the top end of the gullet because you want live food samples. You want to see the chronomid pupa wiggling around in your little sample jar or the mayfly nymphs or the damselfly nymphs or the zooplankton or the shrimp or the scuds. What, what's the weirdest thing you've ever pulled out of a trout? <laughs> uh, what's you know, I out of a throw pump. Um, you know, I I've seen wasps and honeybees, um, but as when I was when I was working as a biologist, I did I did a lot of lake inventory, uh, and you know, sampling fish populations, and we would be doing a stomach analysis, and I've I found uh, 
a beer bottle cap <laughs> and a pull tab in a truck at one time. I don't know how he got that bottle cap down. I just couldn't believe it. This was the same trout with both a, a pull tab and yeah, a bottle cap? Yeah, I- yeah, a beer bottle cap and a pull tab from <laughs> another kid. That trout's just looking to have a good time. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on is uh, dry fly fishing, because mostly we've been talking about coronamids and some of the other um, subsurface yeah. flies like scuds and leeches. Um, do you have a, uh, a pretty significant dry fly season? And if so, how does that factor into uh, what you're throwing when you go out? Yeah. So our our dry fly fishing in the lakes is restricted to mayflies, Calabatus mayflies, and a couple species of caddis flies. Okay, that's... And so the mayflies, um, like nice cloudy day, like it is tomorrow, I could take you to a lake and we would get some dry fly, some adult mayfly fishing in the mid to late afternoon. Um, so there, the mayflies are hatching in shallow, shallow water, you know, five, six, seven feet of water this time of year, uh, middle of May to the middle of June. And then late June through July, we have caddis hatches, uh, caddis fly hatches on not every lake, uh, very specific lakes. Uh, and uh, you can have some very good dry fly fishing when the caddis are initially emerging. So the pupa's got to the surface, the adults crowd out, it's holding its wings tent-like to dry them, folds them down and starts scampering across the water to get airborne that you can have some phenomenal fishing then or you can have very good fishing when the female caddis adult comes back to lay eggs typically in the evening hours and they'll run across the surface of the lake and uh, become extremely vulnerable to uh, foraging trout. Now do you skitter your fly on the surface to mimic that or are you generally leaving it sit there? No you're casting it out on a floating line hits the water and it's continuous, fast, one to three inch poles to make on the caterpillars. You want to make a V-wake. You want to you want to make some surface disturbance. Whereas if it was a if we were fishing mayfly adults, you would let it just wind drift and let let the breeze push it in front of the feeding lanes of the trout and they'll eat it. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I have definitely seen caddisflies skitter before, but I feel like mayflies just kind of sit there and, and wait for their fate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Brian, just to wrap up, um, tell me uh, where people can find you. I know you, you mentioned in the document I sent you that uh, you host a fishing show. Yeah, you know, I'm a, a regular co-host of Sport Fishing on the Fly, which it's been going now for 26 years. And I, I, yeah, I, I've, I've done a lot, a lot of TV shows for different uh, productions over the years. But uh, sport fishing on the fly, it's all we do is fly fishing. It's, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we, uh, the, the host Don Fresky and his brother Dale Fresky and I, we look back at 25 years ago. Oh, we all had, I had nice jet black hair. <laughs> Don and Dale had dark. But, you know, brown, black hair now, and you look at us now, we're all, <laughs> we're all salt and pepper. <laughs> and we get, a, we get a chuckle out of it. Well, people have gotten to follow along with your journey, I'm sure. 
<laughs> and uh, it's, you said you also write for a uh, or for Fly Fusion magazine. Um, do you have a, a regular article in that? Yeah, I have a regular Stillwater column in Fly Fusion magazine, um, which I enjoy writing because I, I can get very, very focused on really minute topics, but I can expand them. So it's really dedicated to the, the Stillwater junkies that are out there. And uh, uh, we're certainly seeing more and more Stillwater fly fishers. And it, unfortunately, one of the reasons it's unfortunate because one of the reasons why in British Columbia we're seeing more and more stillwater anglers is because of significantly declining steelhead populations. They're collapsing. It's, it's, it's so sad to see. And as well as in-river salmon, recreational salmon fishing opportunities are drastically declining. And so the saving grace in this prop in this province for freshwater fishing are trout lakes because we have thousands of them. Well, at least there's uh, something to maybe take the pressure off. I I don't want to get uh, too into the steelhead world in this episode, but I know that there's you know varying opinions on the best way to handle that, and I know so, at least some people are in favor of um, you know at least taking a couple of years of closures and and kind of getting people elsewhere. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, yeah. if, if people could voluntarily go fish lakes instead and maybe take some of that pressure off, then, you know, <laughs> hopefully the steelhead can, can rebound a bit in the future. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's so much going against them that we have no control over, meaning, and I'm talking about ocean survival because of global warming and the way the ocean temperatures are changing and where they migrate and where their food sources are. Uh, it, it's a tough it's a tough uh, road ahead of them. And incidentally, the re- you know, with the other downfall of declining steelhead populations is that anglers are now f- focusing more and more on bull trout, which are already are a species of concern or a species at risk or threatened, depending on where you are in North America. And so that's, that's also causing issues because, as you know, bull trout are, once you find them, they're very, very gullible. They're, they're not hard to catch once you find them. And so there's issues with that. So thankfully, we have lots of lakes to buffer to, to absorb these, these anglers that are losing their traditional uh, fishing opportunities. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, there's people around the around the continent too who just you know they're sick of the pressure they see on rivers and, and might just want to try something new where they can get out and yeah. you know try some new yeah. skills and maybe take the pressure off. So um, you know hopefully we can kind of spread out and and not not bog any one resource down too much and you know <laughs> spread ourselves out over the landscape a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, Brian, I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. I really liked the the biology side you could bring to it. Um, I was really excited to find out that you've been a biologist. Um, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and um, hope that you're going to get out on the water soon. I'm sure your season's about to pick up. <laughs> it was great talking to you, Nitty. And uh, yeah, I'm on the water again tomorrow. And uh, I'm looking outside right now and it, we've had a windy, wet spring and it's raining out there right now. So I'm not really excited <laughs> yet. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck weather-wise too. <laughs> no. Thanks very much. Dave. Thank you. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. 
And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.